On this edition of the Ninja Tune podcast, we chat to Jason Swinscoe and Dominic Smith from the Cinematic Orchestra about how they met whilst working at Ninja Tune in the late 90s and the London music scene at the time. The conversation covers the early years of the band and what it was like in and around Ninja Tune during that legendary period. Cold Cut, DJ Food, Fortet, Amon Tobin, Ninja Tune boss back then Peter Quick, Stealth and Metalheads all feature in the conversation. The new album from the Cinematic Orchestra, To Believe, is out on the 15th of March. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Artisan around, founder and fusionary. Foot map, linguistic scanter. Helpless in the entity. See the cage bird at the bosom of the angry shortfall. One finds a fistful. All engaging. All engaging. Perfections in that non perfection and I see queen, I see king, I see king, I see queen, well None of you know my kingdom manium Last chance to retract it Last chance to retract it Why would you hide from yourself? When were you working at Ninja? Oh, 96, 1996, I think. Is that when you joined? Uh, yeah, uh, it was through a electrician really? <laughs> <laughs> who uh, was a DJ, but an electrician, Chris Vergado. Oh, what, what, that's from, from Zero DB? Yeah, Zero DB, yeah, he, exactly. Was he, because he was an, was he an Ninja back in the day? Or? He was, yeah, he was, right. an, and I met him in a small town up in the borders of Scotland, DJing with a friend, and my friend Andy, and it's at the time when I was collecting uh, Mowax and Acid Jazz records and yeah, yeah. tune records actually. Yeah. And he knew Pete. Right. And did one summer of an internship at Ninja. And that was my connection, my way kind of into meeting Pete Quick. Right. Yeah. And was it like, it was what were you doing? Instant, you're doing international, weren't you? Like distribution and. Well, at the beginning, it was kind of just mailing 12s out to DJs yeah. and to radio. Right. Making cups of tea. <clears throat> trying to gravitate to the studio right. at um, Clink Street for the Colcott studio. Yeah, yeah. And PC was in there a lot. Yeah. And just kind of like, just curious to like pop my head around the corner, see what was going on, see what music was being made. And so were they doing, they were doing, um, were they doing Let's Play or something then? They start, were starting yeah. Let's Play. It was a, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of buzz around Ninja and David Burns came into the, the office, right. which is an incredible, uh, Sakamoto came in, there's just like a bunch of people, uh, Bernard Purdy right. was in. Uh, the sessions for Bernard Purdy were, I think, probably in the local studio. Okay. The bridge, the bridge in Hoxton mm -hmm. Square. Yeah. So that's where... Same studio, we recorded a bunch yeah. of stuff. Yeah. yeah, we did pretty much most of the drum I recordings. I filmed Bernard Purdy in that studio. <laughs> no way. Yeah, that was one of the first jobs I did for Cold Cut. Wicked. Yeah. <clears throat> I filmed hit the, the kick drum, which ended up in the uh, More Beats and Pieces video. No like, way! That was Bernard Purdy's right. foot and his <laughs> kick drum and my film work. <laughs> the filming was better than the foot I always yeah, thought. Incredible. <laughs> Great
So were you were you a ninja already when Jackie started? I think when I I came maybe just a tiny bit after you on the intern thing, and I'd done work at other labels in London and was into getting into it. Um, and then there was I saw an ad in there was an ad in Music Week for some role at Ninja. That's so pro. Really? <laughs> well, my girlfriend at the time was working at Mercury and I'd done some work for them, like volunteering work. And uh, she was definitely like really on it. Um, and I think she actually pointed it out to me. Right. And I was like, oh, fuck it, I'll try it. And I just went in and met Pete. And, uh, but that was around the same time as, as you were uh, meeting Pete. Yeah, I think um, not long after. I couldn't. Yeah, it was real. It was real close. Yeah. Jay was another intern when I was there. I was like, oh, that guy is here as well. And I'd see you go in and out. And uh, there's mastering upstairs. There's an Italian kind of like producer, dude. right? A DJ. Well, that's the Starbucks now, isn't it? Down on the river. I mean, that's yeah. where Starbucks went in there, didn't they? In King Street. It, they did. But it was a really. The whole building was like full of very interesting kind of like independent projects. Yeah. And there's a lot, as I was saying, there's a lot of people in and out, a lot of traffic, a lot of creative traffic coming into, in and out of Ninja. So that's where I met Rodney Roots Maneuver. Right. And just down the road was another small independent label, Nine Bar. Okay. Which was a, a studio. They set, set up an office for the, the label and a studio called Blow's Yard. Yeah, okay, Blow's. Where a lot of the big dadder. Sweet there was a rule. It was a studio, recording right. recording studio. And that's where <coughs> a lot of Big Dada kind of went. Nine bar, blows yard. Nine bar did that Amon album, was it the Cujo? Yeah, Cujo, they yeah. did the Cujo records. So. That's how Amon got on Ninja. Right, yeah, right. Really good, you know. The Darren, there's two guys that were running the, uh, the office and the studio. They were really into kind of like, kind of like valve equipment. Mm. They had a lot of kind of old, kind of like Russian, kind of like Russian copies of Neumanns, really, right, right, right. But really good, yeah. Which had kind of unique kind of like coloration to them. And so a lot of Rodney was using Roots was using kind of Blows Yard. I took cinematic in there early. So he was doing brand new second hand though? It was there, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. It was there. And it was a, a, little, a young guy, Jamie, he was the in-house engineer. And it was just a cool, vibey place. Yeah. And so London Bridge then was just like, it was, it was a, way before Borough Market, a huge enterprise in itself. So you, you were making music then, like in your own time and I, I was sampling and... I, I was inspired at Ninja and, and basically finished at is it 11 o'clock, 11am to 7pm roughly like the music industry kind of hours mm. and I'd get home and with a little bit of kind of contribution from Ninjas and just like some wages or starting to get some wages, some money, Yeah. that kind of uh, paid for buying a sampler. Right. And that's, and that's 900 I think it was and a, a 6.30 performer Apple Mac. Right. And you know, Matt was always kind of, Matt from Colcott was always kind of like, he was looking at audio platforms, software platforms, yeah. and really into kind of tech. And the early tech there, he was really kind of embracing it. Like sound designer, I think it was sound designer, or ended up becoming Pro Tools. Okay. And that was their first stereo audio platform. Right. And you couldn't really multi-track, it was just stereo files, that's it. So it's for editing, but it was the, it was the basis for Pro Tools. And that's what, what it's become, it's like the industry standard. So Matt's involvement and getting a sampler and a stack of old, you know, old vinyl, jazz, film music, folk music, world music, African music. 
whatever, you know, choral music and just started to kind of cut up, you know, inspired by, you know, cold cuts with the beats and pieces, you know. Welcome to the church of what's happening what's happening what's happening stage and that when you were just homies in the office sort of thing talking about music and yeah I always I, there's obviously loads of conversation it was like Ollie from Herbalizer <laughs> Kev was in there all day Alistair from Sun Records that was like the, the height of trip hop wasn't it around like... yeah and at that time you know uh, Kev and and uh, PC were just, mm. they were like on a roll. They yeah. were like, we're selectors and we're mixers and we're the one we're we're stars, you know. And they were and they were killing it for sure. Well, there is a there is a, a ninja sort of fable that Pete would get pissed off if anyone put a non ninja record on his office stereo. Pete was like Pete. Pete's an amazing dude, and and, and, uh, and knowing him from then to now is a real privilege because he was a real fiery. Mm. Like go get in. Like, he was really like he was sharp as fuck, mm. and he was like really bright-eyed and you know. And it's not that he isn't any of those things now, but he's also got a wisdom about him now. And there was definitely a point where he like transcended to another level of mm. kind of existence for me, where I was like, he's not really engaged in the fight anymore. He's gonna just go, children, children, stop it. <laughs> you know, whereas the older Pete would have engaged in the fight, and uh, and, it, and, it, and I was like, damn, like lessons. But I think you know, through all of that, it was just clear to me for sure that I really liked what Jay liked, and I liked the fact that he was in her house music mm. a lot mm. uh, because. In, and it definitely wasn't a guilty secret to me, but it was like people would take the piss out of you for liking house music. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People would take the piss out of them for liking jungle. It was like fucking jungle, really? <laughs> you know, it was just like, <laughs> and I'd be like, you're mad. There's so much good stuff here, and, yeah. it's, and it's fucking live. And I was, I was living in Brixton for most of my London life at that time, and there was so much good stuff going on just locally. Was um, was Stealth at the Blue Note during that period? Stealth was really my introduction to Ninja. Yeah. It was like the first paid job I got. I think I got like a... It, it, I think it was somewhere else originally. Like before Blue Note, right. And then it... But when it was <clears throat> offered by South, South, <laughs> South was running the Blue Note, who went on to... It was New Phonic, wasn't New it? New Phonic, yes. Bridge and Tunnel was the was bar. Then. Yeah. But when Ninja kind of were on the kind of weekly, <coughs> is it, it's a monthly, wasn't it? It's a monthly. Yeah. But that's correct. It's a monthly kind of like roster of um, nights, like stealth. 
it was it was absolutely popping by that yeah. it was the club in London hands yeah. down yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to live around the corner on Coronet Street right I knew Metalheads had started because in my kitchen all of the glass kind of like <laughs> wine glasses and kind of mugs just started shaking yeah. like, here comes Metalheads which was incredible and it, it, it was that sub just travelled throughout the whole neighbourhood but everybody embraced it and it was the queues around the corner down the street and people were just wanted to get in and it was just like packed every night so were you two going down Metalheads as well as stealth? yeah for sure for sure yeah it's all the London cutting edge labels had kind of like monthly yeah. nights and there was a really healthy competition yeah. which was really it was good like sparring partners and great time yeah. to DJ on a, on a pirate which is every Monday night <coughs> it's called Heart FM oh, wow. that was in uh, Wandsworth and that was literally I would leave the office with um, a, a record bag for like house tunes was that like Planet E what sort of it's kind of strictly rhythm a lot of kind of New York US kind of house and yeah. some British kind of like underground yeah. London nice and ripe right it's a great label with uh, Grant Nelson right he ended up sharing a studio with MJ Cole on a studio called Soho Studios off Torton Court Road. There's a cheese connection there. Yeah, ran from the habitat. For that sort of thing in those days. It's black market. 
Did they do house and techno at that market? Downstairs. Right. Hip hop upstairs, house techno downstairs, and it would you'd get all of the under you know the the better the relationship you built with the kind of like the the DJs in there. Yeah, yeah, and there's and some the great, yeah. There's some great DJs in there that obviously subsidised their careers, their club career by working in black yeah. market. So they they got all of the early releases, the test pressings, yeah. and if you got to know them, you'd get test pressings. And the day. The Saturday I got the bomb by the Bucketheads right. was like a, holding a gold disc <laughs> and I that night I DJed a house, <laughs> a house party in Brixton right. and I was like I'm going to drop this just at the right moment and I mixed it in three after about 45 minutes and when it dropped it was just like exactly it was just perfect it was like the whole house erupted and those moments were just like uh, incredible, you know. That's when London was really open, and uh, the Blue Note was just—it was buzzing. It really was buzzing. South London was the, like the, the, the like illegal part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all illegal. Yeah. Cool town in Brixton back then. Cool town, like Cool town was insane. Like you'd have a room of like hard jungle, yeah, a room yeah. of hard um, dub, and then techno, yeah, and house, yeah all in the same joint, and it was the old DSS building, you know, it was like... Sofas. Yeah. DFS. Although... Although... I remain... your music then so what was so you were sampling bits and um, DJing I kind of I suppose my record collection was forever growing but I used to play when I studied in Cardiff studied fine art I was in a band a three piece which was kind of like post-punk American inspired by like Primus okay. um, Black Flag um, that kind of thing, and I, pl I played the electric bass and was a guitarist and a drummer, and I kind of like started collecting records, you know that that kind of genre as well as wanted to kind of hone in on kind of bass players. So I started expanding, um, creating an interest in listening to jazz bass players like Charles Mingus, uh, Jack Pistorius, Stan Clark, and like for electric. Uh, Jimmy Garrison, so it lead me into the rhythm section, which I'm obviously being into house, into rhythm, and finding a kind of like an entry point in jazz with the rhythm section, mm. like Buddy Rich and you know Steve Gadd, Elvin Jones. And when I discovered Elvin Jones, I was every time he did a residency at Ronnie Scott's, mm. I was there. Mm. It was insane. It's like um, 
Never. Never forget those. Elvin Jones, Jazz Machine. I was kind of exploring that kind of side of kind of live jazz and McCoy Tyner would play he'd play at the jazz cafe but Elvin old school would play at Ronnie's mm. so there's like a different crowd mm. and both insane insane musicianship and like the kind of like the, the dialogue they were creating with the audience and the conversation the internal conversation in the music was kind of pretty mind-blowing and when you get that kind of American musicianship and kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for the, they kind of embrace entertainment they really engage and they share it the performance yeah, yeah the performance is, is key one of the key aspects of it well we know guys literally played with the greatest ever didn't they so we knew yeah so I saw two of the members of the John Coltrane quintessential quartet and it just blows my mind to imagine what they'd be like all the other Mm-hmm. I wish I could rewind time. So it's kind of like being inspired by that kind of generation and everything that was going on around Ninja and House and kind of Jungle and just London really popping. Mm. It's like, I want to get in this, I want to get in. It's like, and so I just dived in with the sample and started to learn how to edit, cut up and kind of extrapolate kind of motifs, ideas, rhythms, loops and kind of start constructing kind of like ideas and bits of thought, bits mm. of music. And it was literally a bedroom thing. 7pm, clock off at Ninja, go home and be up kind of like until I fell asleep. And it was just, it was amazing. It's amazing. And when he's While I was still was at the office, I, I sent, I mailed out two copies of Diabolus, two, one to Giles and one to John Peel, both at Radio 1 at the time. Yeah. And the one for John Peel got sent back somehow. Right. And the one for Giles got through the net. And yeah. he championed it and Giles asked. Benji was kind of like helping Giles at the time. Yeah, like young producer on yeah. Yeah, young Benji and he asked. He was also a ninja in time at some point. Yes, yeah. that's right. <clears throat> and he asked me to do a mix for, for Giles for Radio 1. So I kind of did that and just started kind of doing live shows and remixes and just engaging kind of on a daily basis with kind of like music which was super cool you know I had no idea what was going to happen but just went went with the flow
I met everybody in the office, it was like, oh man, these people are real. They're like, they're not bullshitters, they're not doing it to be hit mm. or cool. Mm. And, 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 and I was kind of like, they're nerves. Mm. And that's, that's so fucking cool. Mm. You know, it wasn't like a negative, it was mm. like a positive. Mm. And I didn't expect that. Mm. And that really charmed me and it made me just want to be around it. I was just like, I like all of these people, it's a really creative environment and that whole Clink Street, um, that mm. whole building was crazy, it was a squat, it was an illegal squat on the Thames. Yeah. Like, can, you, can you imagine that now? It's mm. crazy dude, it's like different, different era, different yeah. world. Um, but it was when I got full time employment really that I think me and Jay spent more like, it naturally meant I was working with Jay. You were in international? In the international. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that just meant that we spent more and more time together. And that coincided with Jay, kind of, Jay had done a lot of work on the first record, for sure. And, and, and really, I, I was involved at the latter stages of that, and only really in the sequencing. But, but also, it was the beginning, it, was, it really felt like a, that moment of being close enough to Jay to be like, wow, oh, Motion. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Motion. Which, which was for me, I was a bit shocked that you were like, cool, let's go. That's kind of what you got. I, I was, I was very kind of um, <coughs> confident and trusting Dom and his all the discourse we'd had up to that point. And I was like, I can't really see it, and I trust you. Do it. Take it. Yeah. And that was kind re, of re reimagine re, re it as a kind of long form sequence. For me, it was, it was, I was heads down mm. in, in the tracks and I didn't really know how to present it. And like, you know, Don was like, I think you start with Durian. And I was like, I haven't thought of that. And it was kind of a great introduction to the record and that was mastered upstairs with John Voda. Tenth Planet. Tenth Planet, yeah. Were you actually at Ninja working when, like, did you work your own record? Yeah, almost. <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, the, while I was still in the office, after it had been released, the, the record, there was a call that I picked up, which was uh, Kieran Hebden. Oh. And he, was like, he just called in. He's like, uh, I'd like to speak to the uh, label manager. And I'm like, uh, could I ask who's calling? What, what's the request? He's going, I'm just heard this uh, band, Seamus Fortune, and I, I'd love to do a remix for them. <laughs> and I was, I was going, hey, Kieran, this is Jay from Cinematics. He's like, oh my god! He's, uh, it was funny, but then what happened, Ross Dewberry from Brighton Jazz Bop called into Ninja right. saying, love it. And he was, you know, props to him. He was kind of like into the more jazzy end, which mm. was kind of relative to cinematic sound. Mm. Um, was actually curating and putting on the, he was programming the Brighton Jazz Bop. Mm. What, what year were you in there? <laughs> Mm, 2000 probably. Okay. It was released September 1999. Yeah. And so he was asking for a live show. I'm like, damn. It's like I've just literally got out of the studio and put this record out, which I have no idea how it's going to do. Yeah. And getting a request to kind of do it live. I'm like, and I was going, who else is playing? He's going, uh, Leon Thomas. Mm. And I was like, no pressure. I was yeah. Like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> and it was a big, it was a real big deal. And it's like, it, I was extremely scared, but <clears throat> took it on, took took on the challenge. To try and take my pride and take my legacy Your naked world has no respectability I came a long way with no hospitality It's my life I'm fighting for
So who was the band at that point? At that time, there wasn't a band actually, so some of the people that had been in the studio yeah. were doing some kind of like jam sessions. Tom Chan. Obviously Tom Chan, because he was all across the first record. Yeah. And he was introduced to me through Gwen Jamois, a French guy that was a record dealer. Okay. He would always be in and out ninja for John and Matt. Right. Matt and John and uh, he was kind of like servicing Giles yeah. and David Holmes yeah. and James LaBelle, blah, blah, blah. And he has some incredible knowledge of music. So he was going, you're looking for a saxophonist? I got my mate down in Brixham. So Tom was involved in the studio sessions. And the drummer was Federico Ugi's, an Italian drummer that's subsequently moved on to Brooklyn. He's still in Brooklyn, New okay. York. And um, Alex James. Um, no, it's Tom. Tom Champ played, actually, he was playing keys and saxophone. Oh, right. Because he's a great pianist as well. Yeah. And uh, Phil France on bass. And for that show, who else was there? Was that the first live show? That's the first live before, show. Yeah. And on the bill with Leon Thomas. Leon Thomas, actually, before the show, I think he passed away. Oh, fuck. And that, that was the first kind of like show. And <clears throat> that kind of led to a European tour. Which kind of, it was a natural process for me to kind of like, I was then from five days in the office down to four mm. with, with an agreement with Pete. Yeah. And then that four went down to three days. Yeah. And, that, and then at one point Pete was going, I think you should just leave. He was like, this is quite well, I think you should yeah, leave. I think you should leave. And a European tour was set up and then that was on the road. And I was scared as hell because I'm like, I don't know how this works. Yeah. I don't know, it's like, um, is there any money in this? Yeah. I'd like to stop Ninja, didn't have any kind of like income. Regular income, yeah. And I'm like, and started doing shows and then started getting loads of offers for remixes. Through, actually, so through kind of being championed by Giles and listening to his show on a kind of constant, on a weekly basis, yeah. <clears throat> I started kind of getting into his vibe and discovering new music. You know, he's always discovering new music. And he, he introduced me to the theme of yo-yo. Now that led me to like, oh my God, this is incredible. This has like got all the free jazz that Tom's bringing to mm. the table and it's got groove. And you know, and it's got these crazy lyrics on the top of it. Mm. It's like, what is going on? record and Rodney was around, Roots Moon was around and Brand New Second Hand was out and that, I was absolutely loved that record. That was a big and important kind of aspect of every day. It was about exploring the new, which was Roots Maneuver, the London UK kind of scene, as well as kind of uh, inviting in some of, I was so intrigued by some of like, who's still around from the jazz scene, who's still around from the soul scene. 
It's like, do they still do music? Have they retired? It's like, no, they don't. They've never retired. Mm. That's the thing. Mm. They don't retire. Yeah. It's like, it's for life. Yeah. And Jeff Way was was running the Ninja Tune North America. Yeah. Out of Montreal. Yeah. And he did a bit of kind of research for me and found out that Fontella was releasing music on Just In Time Records, okay. in, which is a Canadian small independent jazz rep label. And she was self-managed and through the, the label manager there kind of got Fontella's number and kind of got in touch and took, you know, chatted on the phone, talked about music, talked about free jazz, talked about the art ensemble of Chicago, the, the, the lost film which was never released, Les Stones to Sophie. Um, and Did she know your work? She, no, she didn't really. She didn't. Yeah, she's a woman from St. Louis. She always lived in St. Louis. Yeah. Always went back to St. Louis. Her mum was there when she was around. Her church was there. All her family were there. Yeah. And it was literally like, you want to work with me? You come to St. Louis. Yeah. So I went and was kind of, you know, at that point, I was kind of like a kind of sidekick and a, a right hand man was the bass player Phil mm. and he was getting involved in helping with harmony and kind of contributing to writing to every day. So I was like, Phil, do you want to come? Do you want to come to St. Louis? So we got on a flight from London, go to St. Louis, get really hammered on the plane. Yeah. We get off, we get stopped at customs because obviously uh, we didn't take any instruments, but they were very curious why we were in St. Louis. Yeah. Right, well, I was just visiting a friend. They let us through, and at the, uh, the baggage reclaim, Fontella was there with a huge fur coat on, with a cigarette in the mouth, oh. and, and I was still hung over, and yeah. walked straight past her. <laughs> and Phil was like, Jay, I think uh, this is Fontella. And she had a big Lincoln Cadillac, it was just like, and she we, we drove back to hers, and started to kind of get into it and it's it was, that was a amazing kind of experience to be with a, a bit of a legend you know and she had so many stories about music so many stories about the industry you so record all the year and evolution on that trip yep both of those were recorded um, on that one trip in a in a professional studio that she knew the engineers in St. Louis <coughs> And you were, well, you were still wasting over that time, so you went back and you were, were you working on the record then or were you just like, oh, I'm going to see what's happening with Fontella? And... We're working on the record, there's obviously a track, Evolution, which was kind of, you know, the, the interesting thing is like, at the same time, the Porto in 2001 was the European city of culture, and there was a film festival that was put on by a guy, Pedro, some surname I forget, and he invited us to to kind of rescore, or not rescore, to, to write an original score for Ziggo Vertov's yeah. the movie camera. And as a one-off event, a one-off performance in a huge 3,000 capacity theater in Porto, I thought it was a little gig of 500 people that oh. arrive really naively, and like with all the kit, roll it on stage, it's like, oh my God, this is like, this is something. And that, in that process of writing, uh, man with a move camera out of that extrapolated every day. Exactly. So they, they fed into each other and it was like literally going down to 
a studio in London Bridge, a rehearsal studio with a massive old TV and a VHS player right. and a copy from the BFI, right. which is the only place I could find it, yeah. of my movie camera on VHS, yeah. which is subsequently lost. And it was literally back to the machine, you know, manually I rewind, it, yeah. rewind. And then we kind of got to scoring the whole thing, got to the end and then re rewind it. And we'd missed four minutes at the beginning. And I was like, we've run out of time. Because we had, we had to pack up and so leave that night to go do the show. It's silent, isn't it? Yeah. Minutes, and it, yeah. the first four minutes is silent. And it was so amazing how that just like happened yeah. by luck. But it's a really excellent kind of like, just leave it happy, it doesn't need music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The audience are coming in. I remember that. Make, it so a, make that, so make that reality. Yeah, yeah. Make, that, make that picture And then reality. it's um, prelude, isn't it? Yeah, so the, so the first sound is a kind of like a bowed kind of bell, which is when they switch on the projector mm. and start screening the yeah. film. And it's like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody keep the story quiet because it, this is, yeah, that was, that was conceptualised. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> avant-garde. Forgetting <laughs> to walk I've never heard that story, I've never heard that story. And that is, that is the that is the... The truth, the truth. And so, that's yes, awesome. that's awesome. So it fed into it fed into every day. And so actually, sitting down with Fontella, we were, I was exploring the film with her and trying to. She right. hadn't seen it. She had no idea. And her connection with, with film was Les Tons de Sophie, yeah. which was the art ensemble they recorded in Paris. And she wrote the words with Malachi Favors, the bass player in art ensemble. You know, for the words for theme de yoga. Yeah, it is all up the tree on finish on the lead day. Yeah, yeah, and it's just all crazy, crazy kind of like, kind of like um, stream of consciousness lyrics. Yeah. And they just sat down and wrote it, and then they all performed it, and their vibe was incredible. You know, and obviously Lester Boy had passed away long before I was introduced to Fontella, and but I was telling her that the track Evolution, which was a piece of music written for Man With The Movie Camera, telling her about the film, and and she came up with the, the, the hook, Evolution, and, and then all that you give was a kind of a homage, and to her, when she was in tears, when she's, um, when she's recording words, and she wanted to do Evolution first, because all that you give became a kind of very dear to her, and it was a song about her late last husband lost mm. a boy, mm. and she was in tears in the studio. But it was it was a really special moment.
Cinematic Orchestra are currently on tour. You can find out more about upcoming dates and their new album featuring Moses Sumney, Roots Maneuver, Heidi Vogel, Grey Reverend and more via cinematicorchestra.com.